In this episode of Real World Serverless, I interviewed my good friend Scott Smethurst and Diana Yonita about their work at LifeWorks, a well-being startup that decided to go serverless, hired Scott and Diana to build a well-being section of their app with severe time constraints and how they managed to ship it on time and help the company get acquired for over $400 million. It's a fascinating story and they did some amazing work there very, very quickly. I'm sure you're going to enjoy this episode. Hi, welcome back to another episode of Real World Serverless, a podcast where I speak with real world practitioners who are building stuff with serverless and get their stories from the trenches. Today, I'm joined by two old friends of mine, Deanna and Scott who I've worked with at Yubble. Hey, welcome to the show, guys. Hey, Jan. Hey, Jan. It's been a while since we worked together at Yubble and uh, we did some really cool things there. But you guys have been working together at a few startups where you continue to use serverless for pretty much everything you do. So tell us about your experience the last couple of years and what you guys have been doing. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's mainly been at one place from... It was about mid-2017 until the end of last year. Uh, we were working with a client called LifeWorks. Their CTO, Ed, uh, he'd actually heard some of the cool stuff we'd we'd done at Yubble. That's mostly you, Jan, let's be honest. And he, he got in touch with me and, and we had a chat. And it, it, it quite quickly became apparent that LifeWorks could really benefit from going serverless because... They were pivoting in a new direction and they'd kind of hit architectural gridlock, I suppose, with their existing back-end solution. So yeah, Ed ended up bringing me in as a, as a tech lead, an architect, and pretty quickly after that, I got Deanna on board. And yeah, we were there for just over two years. So Deanna, tell us about LiveWorks. I guess most of us uh, who are not based in the UK may not even heard of them. Um, sure. Um, LifeWorks is a well-being company. So it acts as a service that other companies uh, can get for their employees. For instance, they have trained counselors that you can call they, that would help you through hard times like financial troubles or when you're grieving or have other kinds of personal difficulties. They don't disclose the information you provide to your company, so it's a, it's a safe space. So they also provide an app that you can use to help yourself before you start talking to people because that's more expensive. But they started off as a social network mostly. So you could see a feed of your colleagues' activities, get perks, discounts, restaurants and cinemas. But while we were there, we built a well-being section of the app where you can, like I said, help yourself. For instance, you could track habits that you might want to implement, like switching fizzy drinks for water or choosing to walk or cycle over taking the bus. It has a section called challenges. You can compete against your coworkers, see who takes most steps in a certain time frame. You can receive tips on how to improve your life by completing assessments, basically a set of questionnaires on well-being topics like drinking or sleeping. The app also tries to encourage you to use it. So they've gamified these actions. You receive points whenever you, for instance, take steps or complete the assessments I just mentioned. You use then uh, these points to get discounts in popular shops or even small monetary rewards. Okay, so was this something that you guys were building from scratch as opposed to lifting and shifting or breaking apart existing monolith into serverless? Yeah, it was It was mostly a greenfield set of features. As Diana touched upon, it started off as a, 
it's a kind of yeah, like it was like a, a social network for employees with you know rewards, recognition, and all that kind of stuff. At that point, it was just a UK company called Work Angel. They ended up merging with a forty-year-old US company called LifeWorks, and that's where the employee assistance program stuff came in. And at the point, I'd got in touch with me. They'd made a decision to pivot, yeah, more towards this well-being space. It turns out that gives you access to a much larger market. I think like the EAP market is about $1 billion, whereas the well-being market's like $65 billion. So these features we'd been tasked to build, there were a bunch of them like Diana just described. One slightly problematic thing was they'd already signed a strategic partnership with the Royal Bank of Canada Insurance and what they were going to do is they were going to upsell the LifeWorks platform with their corporate insurance policies, but the proviso there was that they would have all these well-being capabilities in place. So there was a time pressure to iteratively build all of these new features, and I think the CTO realised that because they had this legacy monolithic PHP backend that, based on the current velocity of stuff that was getting done, they, they just had very little chance of of meeting these deadlines. Um, And that's why we decided to go down the serverless route. I mean, it was one of several reasons, but certainly it was about getting more done in less time with fewer people. That was one of the big reasons. And how did that decision work out for them? It it worked out very well. (laughs) It was a huge success, to be honest. I mean, we had that one year and we did hit the final deadline in June of the following year. I decided to take a month out at that point because we'd been working very hard towards that. There was still only a back-end team of four of us at that point. About two weeks into my break, the company got acquired for $400 million. Yeah, a very big part of that, I think, was the well-being offerings they had. I mean, it obviously wasn't the only factor in the acquisition, but Mona Chappelle, the company that acquired them, were also Canadian, like the Royal Bank of Canada, and they were very quick, keen on the well-being offerings. And I, I worked out, you know, in terms of numbers, to deliver all that, we developed about 25 microservices. That was compri- it was comprised of about 170 Lambda functions. And we did that with an average of two and a half back-end developers, because for a large chunk of it, it was just me and Diana. And then for the last two months, Sorry, for the last four months, we hired Imran and Vivian to get us over the line. But yeah, it was a huge amount was achieved with relatively few people. So in this case, you've had uh, you've got quite a lot of microservices all built from the ground up uh, with serverless. Did you guys employ any sort of patterns to help you manage the complexity? And also you were doing this multi-region as well. I remember you telling me uh, anything you guys were doing that made things a bit easier for you. I, I'm not sure I can say anything about particular patterns that we adopted, but I can say a few things that did help. For instance, we had a few uh, DevOps lambdas that made our lives much easier. So they would detect when new lambdas were being deployed and automatically, for instance, configure alarms on errors and latency so that if if anything went wrong, we'd be notified via Slack. It set log expiration dates to comply with GDPR regulation. We'd ship logs to Datadog because we found the CloudWatch was not up to it, it, it did not suit our needs. For instance, we you mentioned going multi-region. We could not search for logs cross-region. That was a pain. 
So for the stuff you were doing, I remember you guys told me that you were deploying to multiple regions to improve latency and also resilience as well. Now, how were you guys so coordinating uh, all the deployments across multiple regions and how do you set up multi-region replication and all of that? Yeah, the multi-region stuff came in post-acquisition because it was quite interesting uh, because immediately prior to the acquisition, the majority of our customer base was in the UK all of our APIs were hosted single region in London. And almost overnight, because of that acquisition, we now knew that the majority of our customers were now going to be in the US and Canada. And there was also going to be a whole bunch of new customers as far away as Australia. So that that's why we started investigating the multi-region thing. We did do some testing with a, a product called a thousandeyes.com that allows you to simulate mobile clients from various locations and gives you the kind of full latency and it has some networking tools built in. And we saw that even a simple hello world in the worst case could take one and a half seconds. Whereas in the multi-region setup, that same user would experience maybe 150 milliseconds. But part of the problem was that right from the off, we'd been given a requirement to geopartition uh, users' data. Uh, this was because some of the well-being data was very sensitive in nature. Uh, you could be asking in a health assessment questions like, does someone feel suicidal? And there were a lot of companies very keen to keep that in their local territory. So as a worst case, you could have a situation, for example, where a user is in Australia, their data was in Australia, but they were then hit at an API in London, which was going back to Australia for the data, then going back again to respond to them. In terms of how we did the multi-region stuff, we had to migrate because, yeah, we were in a single region setup. So we went from APIs that were edge optimized and we had to go to regional APIs and yeah, there was a whole process there. We got our CI deploying to all four regions in parallel. There were four regions we identified that we wanted to go to. And then there was a whole process of moving everything across. We moved the APIs first and the resources second. And we did have to write some custom tooling, actually, to help with that, like um, moving some of the DynamoDB data and some of the S3 stuff. Okay, that sounds uh, pretty interesting, especially with how you have to make sure that user data stays where, well, where it is in the country, uh, but then allow the user to access it from other places in the world as they travel to uh, different uh, locations. And I remember you guys also mentioned that you were building with GraphQL, but you were running your own Apollo server hosted in Lambda as opposed to using AppSync. Can you explain how did you guys came to that decision? The main reason for that, was, well, we did look into AppSync. Uh, AppSync was a very new product at the time. Uh, one of the very big reasons we didn't end up using it is because we had just gone multi-region at that point, and AppSync was only available in one of the four regions we'd just gone into, so that was a big downer. Another thing we weren't keen on was the way... Uh, you could secure AppSync. It was certainly at the time, it was very centered around Cognito uh, and we weren't using Cognito. I would say another factor was we'd gone to huge lengths to build a microservices architecture and we didn't really want to then build a monolithic GraphQL layer. At the time, Apollo Server had a feature called Schema Stitching uh, I believe they've now rebranded that to, I think it's called Apollo Federation. 
But the idea is that you you can federate the graph across your microservices and then you have what appears to be a single GraphQL endpoint still to the clients, which stitches all of the remote schemas together. So from a client perspective, it feels like just one graph. You know, for example, we, we mentioned challenges and assessments. The assessments API would own the assessments part of the graph and the challenges API would own the challenges part of the graph and they would be stitched together in a single public endpoint. From what I could see, AppSync didn't support this and you had to effectively create a monolithic graph uh, within AppSync. So yeah, they were the main reasons we stayed away from it at the time. So as far as I know, that is still the case with uh, AppSync today, that uh, there's no support for schema stitching. So you do end up with one big monolithic graph QL API in AppSync. Um, so switching gears slightly, Deanna, I've got a question specifically for you, because I still remember the day we first met at the Yubble. I was trying to show you this whole serverless Lambda stuff, and all you wanted to do was to have an EC2 instance to run the Node.js uh, Express app. And nowadays, uh, you've changed, uh, you come completely around and you are one of the biggest advocates for serverless that even I know. Um, how did that come about? What's so special about service for you as engineer? Um, well, to be fair, that day when, when we met, that first Node Express app was the, the very first I had built ever. So it wasn't a big switch. <laughs> the, uh, so, so yeah, serverless is exciting for me, I guess because I like that it forces you to go down a microservices route in a way. It makes you think about what's the smallest kind of function that I can build, that I can maintain, that does the job that I need. It's awesome that it can interact with the whole ecosystem, right? All this. I mean, it connects with SNS, SQS. You can have event triggers from pretty much anything you can think of. That is great. So yeah, that, I guess that's what I found ex exciting about it. And so as you transition from building stuff with Express or with the .NET, I guess, the Web API or whatever, to building stuff with Lambdas, individual functions, and stitching things together, what were some of the most challenging aspects of that transition for you guys? Because when we worked together, what, three, Oscar's form was four years ago now, none of you had done anything with AWS and never mind serverless. But now you have both exposed yourself to so much on AWS and with serverless. What are some of the things that you found so most challenging when you were learning serverless and what are the things that really helped you? Um, for me, I guess it was figuring out what you can do because Lambda in itself is just the compute part, knowing that there's so much more that you can do with AWS and still, I'm clearly still learning about it because they come up with new stuff all the time. That's most challenging, keeping up to date, knowing what changes, that to me is most challenging. I would say there was a lot of challenging things. For me, when I when I started working with you at Yubble Yarn, it was it was being thrown in at the deep end, to be honest, because, um, yeah, I was new to Node.js, I was new to AWS, I was new to serverless, so it was all, all very new. I, th I think the big ones with serverless are, it's almost like a, a whole new development paradigm in a way. The kind of way that you test, for example, that you would do TDD or BDD is... It's very different. I think we quickly realized that acceptance level testing has much more value when you're doing serverless development than unit testing everything. A lot of that is because you're effectively orchestrating managed services. And if you kind of mock all of that away, it's not really going to test it. You know, you, 
you may be missing that permission on DynamoDB that you're simply not going to know about unless you deploy that stuff to the cloud and leverage it from the entry point that the thing calling it will be. Yeah, so the the whole different way of testing things. I think silly little things like you have to, if you are running your tests against uh, deployed stuff in the cloud, you need to remember to deploy the latest uh, version of what you're doing before you run those tests. Debugging locally took a little bit of getting my head around because it was, you know, like how the hell can you debug something locally if this is um, cloud-based stuff? But it turns out, you know, you actually can do that quite nicely uh, using the serverless framework. And I think another nice trick we ended up doing was we parameterized our tests so that, you know, you could run them against, for example, a deployed endpoint, but you could equally run those same tests against a local handler, which meant you could step through the code by running your tests as well. But I guess it was just that whole different way of working that was the biggest shock to me. And I guess the fact that I was also learning, you know, Node.js at the same time, and I was so unfamiliar with all of AWS's gazillions of offerings. Yeah, it was it was a fairly difficult transition. But having said that, I thought we got... It didn't take us too long to become productive. I'd, I'd be interested in what your take on that is, Jan, but it felt like we all got up to speed pretty quickly, even though we had all those hurdles. So if I recall correctly, I think uh, every one of you, uh, when you started the first month, was just painful. It's just constantly, how do I do this uh, with Node? How do I do this with AWS? What's this AWS service? Uh, you just name dropped into the conversation. But I think after about a month, every single one of you were pretty productive. You were able to take on task, get it done very, very quickly. And if you remember, we had this sort of tag team where we broke up into the pairs and then we just go and work on a feature and just get it shipped within two weeks. I guess it was difficult, as you said, but you were able to get productive very, very quickly. Again, I think once you get over that and learning some of the things that you are used to doing, you know, what you have to do now is a lot simpler. So, you know, learning the new things is actually not that hard, especially with Lambda. If you know just maybe a handful of services reasonably well, you can do most of the things. Of course, it helps if you know more of the AWS ecosystem, but it's not required for you to be productive. Yeah, I agree. I think after a month, I would say, yeah, that's about right. We were productive. Obviously, you learn more and more as time goes on. And I think, as Diana touched upon, I think the more you can learn about the various offerings that AWS has, the better chance you'll have of architecting the right solution because you kind of need to be aware of what's out there to pick the right tool for the job. So going back to LifeWorks, you guys had a pretty small team. How do you guys organize your AWS accounts? Did you have one account per developer uh, so that everyone deployed to their own account? Um, no, we had actually one development account initially. We ran some problems with that, actually. We would deploy our stacks in our own environment, so I would have a DevDiana environment. And because we had quite a few lambdas, we'd end up maybe having five, 50 CloudFormation stacks each. And we are a team of five, and the CloudFormation stack limit is 200, soft limit, granted. But we had to raise that pretty quickly. Eventually, we started migrating towards having a shared dev environment. And then I'd deploy a DevDiana service, which would talk to dev services. So I'd only have to deploy maybe one or two of the things I was working on and get them to interact. 
we had to do that because some services depended on others. They would publish SNS messages and other services would listen to them. So if I wanted to deploy something that had a dependency on something else, I would have to deploy many services eventually. So yeah, we went down the road of uh, having a shared dev environment. Currently at Uptime, we're even considering creating an AWS account for each developer. We think that might help with the limits. Yeah, maybe it's a simpler way to go. I mean, at one point at LifeWorks, we actually had a single account, I believe, for the lower environments. We ended up having one per stage in serverless, basically. We ended up having a dev integration, test and production accounts. But yeah, you can still run into issues if you're all deploying large stacks in a dev account, uh, hitting limits and stuff. It's definitely a problem. And that I would definitely... At the very least, recommend that, you know, if you have your kind of two pizza teams, that they have their own sets of accounts. I think that can be good for various things as well, you know, from a security perspective. It can kind of decrease the blast radius of an attack. It can decrease the blast radius of a fault, you know, because if something spirals out of control, it can chew up account-wide limits. And if you've got, you know, the whole business running in an account, impact of that can be much larger. So I would imagine a good way of scaling accounts is to have teams owning their own accounts. I'm not sure what you've done, Jan, at places like the zone and but yeah. Yeah, so my general rule of thumb is to have at least one account per team per environment. So you have one account for say the discovery team at the zone where we own a bunch of different microservices and we will have one account for dev, one account for staging, one account for test, and then one account for production. And as you said, any blast radius will be limited to just our microservices and to just one specific environment. And also you don't have that problem with uh, hitting limits all the time. The zone has something like, God, um, 200 something developers, uh, many of them working on a backend. And when they had the shared accounts, it was just ridiculous in terms of the limits we hit, things that you never imagined you would hit. Number of IAM rows, uh, it was like 2,000, we raised it to 4,000. Like a month later, we hit that limit again. Things like that, it just, you know, you just constantly have to stop during the day just to raise a request to raise that limit so you can move on. And even worse than that, you have all these throughput limits at runtime, which is not just resource limits that stops you from you know, developing and deploying things to your environment, but you can actually stop your service at runtime as well. So definitely having more granular accounts and maybe organize them using AWS organizations to manage permissions and apply organization-wide guidance and rules using service control policies, SCPs, and you know, group them around organization units. That's kind of the way you should be managing your accounts in your organization nowadays. But again, that is probably more applicable for a big organization with lots of different people, lots of teams, may not be as relevant or as applicable for a small team with just four developers. I agree. But at the same time, if if you think there is a chance your business is going to scale to have more teams, you maybe can avoid digging yourself into a hole by just doing that from the offset. Personally, I don't think it's a huge overhead either to have a few more accounts. It really depends. There's a lot of tooling around provisioning a new account and also setting up a landing zone for your new account. None of those tooling are perfect. There's the AWS organizations. There's a lot of caveats around that tool. 
it's not great for helping you maintain your landing zone as you change it either. It helps you create that first landing zone as you create a new account. But after that, if you change the say log collection pipeline, for example, yeah, and you want to roll it out to all of your accounts, well, good luck. Uh, it doesn't do that for you. There's open source tool called the org formation, which developed by this uh, bank, which I actually spoke with on this show earlier called MoneyU. They, um, they provide this tool that allows you to use infrastructure as code actually a very similar syntax to CloudFormation to manage your entire organization using YAML, specifying new accounts using YAML, and then also linking them to your organization unit and setting up a CloudFormation stack that will be deployed to every region and every account that you add to your organization. So that too is probably the best one I've seen so far that helps you manage a more complex AWS environment with lots of different accounts to actually do it well, especially when you've got a very small team, it's not as easy as you would like. Yeah, I think you're right. That sounds like a nice uh, nice tool, actually. I've not heard of the one you've just mentioned. I'll have to check that out. Okay, I will send it to you afterwards, and I'll also put in the show notes as well. So that's part one of my conversation with Scott and Deanna. Please come back next week for part two of this conversation. To access the show notes and transcript, please go to realworldserverless.com. I will see you guys next time.